Hi, this is Dr. Vargas Lowy. Uh, welcome to my audio blogs on child neurology. Today I'm going to tackle convulsive seizures. Um, I talked about absence seizures in a different episode. Um, and uh, convulsive seizure is a bigger group of seizures. Um, they can be classified in many different ways. Um, and convulsive actually just describes uh, what it looks like, meaning the convulsions. Um, and the convulsions are these repetitive, brisk movements of the extremities or uh, the head or the trunk. Um, very often they're not just convulsive, um, they, they can also be tonic, and we use uh, another word actually for convulsive, which is clonic. Um, so very often we call them tonic-clonic seizures because they have a tonic component and a clonic component. Tonic means that you're rigid, that you're stiff, and clonic means that you have uh, the convulsions, right? The, the jerky movements. So um, we talk about convulsive seizures uh, because they're very frequent amongst epilepsies, not in the general population, but among the different kinds of epilepsy, uh, convulsive seizures are uh, definitely the most spectacular ones to watch and more scary ones, uh, but also the most, uh, the most frequent ones. Um, um, so when you have a convulsive seizure, uh, typically um, they can be classified into generalized or focal seizures. Um, generalized means that it affects your whole body. All right. And focal, because they arise, uh, just like absence seizures, actually, from your whole brain. Um, or at least that's what we see in the EEG. As opposed to focal seizures that arise only from a specific part of your brain. So if a specific part of your brain is misfiring, that correspondent part of your body will show either the tonic or the clonic movements. So, for instance, if you have uh, in the near the motor area of your brain, the frontal lobe, uh, on the right, you're going to see that the corresponding part of your body on your left is going to uh, show some jerking movements. Those are focal seizures. Um, so uh, once we distinguish, uh, and very often we do that just by the history, you know, we ask the parents or whatever uh, witness uh, what did the seizure look like, um, then uh, we characterize it a little bit better by looking at the EEG. And this is important, uh, and I mentioned the EEG stands for electroencephalogram. Uh, so uh, electro means electricity, right? And cephalo means head and gram uh, means measuring. So we measure the electric activity of the brain in your head. Um, so uh, the EEG very often allows us to pinpoint exactly whether they're generalized or focal, and if they're focal, where they are. Uh, and even if they're generalized, what's the frequency of uh, the electric activity? What's the amplitude, how big uh, those um, you know, waves are in your EEG, uh, and that allows us to reach a diagnosis because um, within convulsive seizures, there's many different syndromes that can explain it. Very often, you're going to see a diagnosis of just generalized convulsive seizures, uh, which means that they're generalized, they're convulsive, and they're seizures. There's not more to it. Um, 
But sometimes uh, generalized convulsive seizures are part of a bigger syndrome, and that analysis of the EEG is going to allow us to determine that. But um, what do they look like exactly? Uh, so I described the movements, um, you know, just uh, whether they're generalized or focal, they're repetitive uh, jerking movements of your extremities or your body, or uh, a tonic rigidity of your extremities or the rest of your body. But there's other, other stuff uh, that uh, we have to look for. First, and very importantly, is the level of consciousness. Uh, very often when you have a generalized convulsive seizure, uh, you lose consciousness, right? Um, you're not aware, you're not able to listen, you're not able to talk, you lose consciousness, very often you drop to the floor and then you have the seizure, right? Uh, because you're not able to maintain uh, a posture because your muscles are discoordinated or all contracting at the same time. Uh, so very important to assess the level of consciousness. Uh, and the reason being that very often when you have a focal seizure, you actually don't lose consciousness. And that's how we classify focal seizures, whether uh, they raise loss of consciousness or not, whether there's awareness or, or not. Uh, we call them uh, focal seizures um, that secondarily generalize, for instance, or not. Uh, because sometimes that happens. They start as a focal seizure, but then they extend into a generalized seizure. We have to pay attention also to the face, uh, because the face, just like the rest of the body, can seize as well. And sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. So uh, I always ask the parents, what were his or her eyes doing during the seizure? Uh, where they rolled back and why the open um, very open uh, with the seizure the eyes typically remain open um, if they're closed it's probably not a seizure I'm going to talk about non-epileptic seizures uh, at the end of this of this blog um, but you have to look at the eyes because they can be rolled up they can just look straight ahead or they can deviate to one side. Uh, very typically, that's one of the ways for us to determine whether it's a focal or a generalized seizure. Generalized seizures, typically the eyes roll up. In a focal seizures, the eyes go to one side or the other. Um, on the face, you can see some grimacing, just like I mentioned in the episode for absence seizure. You can see uh, your mouth twitching to one side or grimacing. Uh, you can see lip smacking, tongue thrusting. Um, you can see excessive sweating, for instance, pallor. You can see that the face turns really white. Uh, if the seizure is prolonged enough, uh, you can see that the tone of the skin can become a little bit bluish because of the lack of oxygen. So that's another thing to note. What else do we have to pay attention to? Um, very often in, uh, when there's loss of consciousness in a generalized seizure, uh, you actually lose control of your uh, bladder. Um, you can also lose control of your bowels. So that's another thing that helps us determine if a seizure is epileptic or not. You can also lose control of your mastication muscles. Uh, you can actually bite your tongue. You can have a tongue bite and have blood come out of your, of your mouth. Uh, you can have excessive salivation because you're not able to, try to uh, swallow properly. Very often, um, your temperature, your body temperature will rise because of the uh, excessive muscular activity. Your body temperature is going to rise. So this is, in a nutshell, what uh, convulsive seizures look like. Uh, but the main thing that I want to transmit to you as parents here is what to do. Uh, because this is probably one of the scariest things to see. 
uh, in your in your uh, child. Um, and uh, it's one of the ser most serious things that can happen in child neurology, actually. Um, so the most important uh, thing is the first aid measures. So imagine that you're alone with uh, your child in the house and you see that they're having a seizure. What do you do? So the first thing is to put them uh, in a safe area. Uh, put them on a rug or in a place uh, that's flat, uh, that there's no hard or sharp or hot objects around, that there's no pools of water around where they could fall and drown. Uh, make sure that he's in a safe area with not a lot of stuff around him or her. Uh, second thing is to put them on the side. And the reasoning for that uh, is twofold. Uh, first, uh, to open the airway. It's easier to breathe when you're on your side, when you're unconscious, uh, because your tongue will not go to the back of your, of your mouth, to your throat, and, and block the airway. Second is because very often after the seizure, uh, kids will vomit. So if you have them on their side, uh, again, they're not going to choke on, on their own vomit. Then another tip that's important is uh, don't try to suppress the movements. Don't try to hold their arms or legs because that can actually lead first to injury uh, of yourself because these movements can be very strong. And second, it can lead to uh, the injury of the kid as well. You can have a, a bone fracture. You can have a dislocation or a muscle torn. Um, so don't try to counteract uh, the movements of the seizures. Um, Try to be aware of the time that's passing. And I know this is very hard in a stressful situation like that, but try to peek quickly at your clock, at your watch, or at your cell phone, and check how many minutes pass, because that's an important thing to know. Uh, that's going to determine, first, uh, the possible brain damage. Second, um, the possible damage to other organs, uh, especially respiration. If you're having a convulsive seizure, you're not going to breathe very effectively. So it's important to know uh, the respiratory function during a seizure. Um, and third, uh, because sometimes we have to give medication to stop the seizure if it's not uh, going away on, on its own. And we decide when to give that medication, uh, whether it's a rectal medication like the diastat or whether it's an IV medication given by uh, the medical staff. Um, typically, we, we run it at the three to five minutes. Um, um, at that point, we decide to give medication. So once you do that, um, you have to call 911. Uh, anytime a kid has a convulsive seizure uh, and there's loss of consciousness, you have to have someone come to your house and evaluate. Um, I always explained this, even though it's, uh, it's, it's very common sense, uh, but some parents think, especially if they really live in remote areas, that it's going to be faster for them to just take the kid to the emergency room. And it might be right. It might be faster for you to just go there, then wait for an ambulance to come, evaluation, and then bring them to the emergency room. So the time from seizure to emergency room might actually be shorter. But you have to think that what matters is not so much when you get to the emergency room as opposed to when they get medical care. And the ambulance is going to be faster getting to your house and already providing medical care, securing an airway, giving medication, etc., uh, than you going to any emergency room. 
So always call 911. Um, then what they will do is, just like I mentioned, they're going to evaluate their uh, mental status, they're going to evaluate their respiratory status, uh, their blood pressure, uh, and they're going to decide whether uh, they're still seizing or not and whether they need to give medication or not. And then, and this is all done while at the house or en route to the emergency room. Then uh, once you get to the emergency room um, comes the decision of what to do next. Uh, and this is sometimes a little bit controversial. Uh, there's, a general, uh, there's a general consensus that anyone who just has a first seizure, one seizure, unless it's very severe, meaning very prolonged, more than five, 10 minutes, or that it comes in clusters, meaning that you have two or more episodes in a 24-hour period, uh, that we don't treat. We don't give uh, epilepsy medication. Um, we follow up as an outpatient, we observe in the emergency room, we do some labs, maybe we need to do some imaging studies of the brain if there has been uh, a clear um, head trauma, for instance. Um, but we don't initiate treatment right away. What we do is that we follow up as an outpatient uh, in the neurologic clinic, and then uh, we do an EEG, we decide whether uh, imaging studies are necessary or not, uh, and depending on the results, we decide whether to treat with or not. Um, so that was a consensus up until a few years ago. Now, what we do is more, we evaluate each case individually, very carefully, depending on uh, the family history, for instance. If there's a really strong family history of seizures, we might think twice about not, not treating. Um, in some cases, it's better to uh, be better um, safe than sorry and actually treat the patient, even though it's just the first seizure. Um, also, the, just like I mentioned, uh, the characteristics of the seizure, if it's very long, if it's very severe, if it took a really long time to recover, maybe it's better to avoid another episode and start treating right away, independently of the EEG. And then, of course, even if it's a first seizure, if we do an EEG and we see that it's very abnormal, then we're going to treat. Um, if it's you know no family history, the seizure lasted one, two, three minutes, which is a, the most common case, uh, then uh, they recovered after an hour and there's no sequela, there's no uh, neurological deficits or anything, we do an EEG a week later and the EEG is normal, then that doesn't mean that it was not a seizure, that it was not epileptic, but it means that we feel comfortable not treating for anti-epileptics. Now, if a few months later, the kid has another seizure, then independently of what the EEG shows, we're going to start treating. Okay, so that's typically the protocol that we use to decide what treatment, uh, whether we are going to treat or not. But in any case, just like I mentioned, uh, even if we don't treat, it's really scary, right? Uh, and you don't want that to happen again. Um, unfortunately, the risk, uh, once you've had a seizure, the risk of having another seizure uh, goes pretty high, uh, at about 35-40%. Um, so uh, it's really important not only to know what to do if another seizure happens, which I just went through, but also preventative measures, uh, what we call prevention. Uh, this doesn't mean that we're going to prevent the seizure from happening, but um, we need to put in place some safety measures in case a seizure happens. So for instance, uh, and this is all common sense, right? Um, so for instance, if a seizure happens on a two-year-old, uh, the recommendations that I'm going to give to their parents are pretty normal. Uh, anything that you would do with a two-year-old anyway, um, such as 
uh, don't let them swim alone in the pool or in the ocean or on the lake. Um, that you would do anyway with a two-year-old. But, you know, maybe with a 12-year-old who has their first seizures, that's something that you have to take into account. If they're going swimming somewhere, make sure that there's always an adult with them uh, that knows how to swim, of course. Um, any other uh, situation where you are at risk of falling or injuring yourself, you know, there's like uh, certain sports that are a little bit more risky, like riding a bike, riding a horse. Make sure that you always wear a helmet. Uh, make sure that there's always someone around in case you have a seizure and you fall and you, uh, and you hurt yourself. Um, other type of measures is uh, making sure that uh, there's always someone with you if you climb to a high place. So for instance, I had a patient who was in college and he was going to an horticology and he was uh, going to an agricultural college of some, of some kind um, and he had to climb on trees very often. So uh, obviously I'm not going to uh, not allow him to climb the trees because he needs that uh, to graduate. Uh, but I will tell him, be careful first, always wear the harness or whatever you use and always make sure that there's someone with you in case you fall, in case you have a, uh, a seizure. Um, so that's another example of being careful. Um, another thing is if you have a prescription for a medication to stop the seizure, like diastite or clonopin, make sure that you carry one with you at all times. Um, we prescribe these kind of medications in seizures that have been prolonged or that happen very often, uh, typically in kids that are older than two. Um, there's different forms. The diastat is one that we use rectally. Uh, there's another one called midazolam. That's a liquid that you can put under the tongue uh, or that you can uh, give as a mist intranasally in the nose. Um, there's another one, clonopin, that's um, a wafer that you can put under the tongue. So there's different forms of medications. These are used as needed when the seizure is longer than three to five minutes. So if you have a prescription for that, make sure that you always carry one with you or that at least there's one at home at all times and one at school at all times. Then medication. Uh, if you are prescribed a medication, if your kid is prescribed a medication for seizures, um, these are medications that you have to take every single day. And it's important that you're very compliant with your medication. You take it typically twice a day, sometimes once a day, sometimes three times a day. But it's very important that you give them as prescribed. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I have parents telling me, well, you know, it was making him sleepy, so I decided to just give him half the dose. That's a big no-no for seizures. You can do that for headaches, you can do that for ADHD, you can skip a dose here and there. For epilepsy, for seizures, please don't do that. Uh, and the reason is not only that um, you are uh, increasing the risk of seizures per se, because they're always, they're, they already have epilepsy, but anyone who takes medications for seizures and then they stop, they are at risk of having a seizure, even if you've never had seizures in your life. So always give the medication as prescribed, please. So this is a lot of information um, and it can be overwhelming, both for parents as well as for uh, the school staff. Uh, and that's the reason why we come up, just like we do with a concussion uh, plan, we do a seizure action plan. Uh, and this is a document that I share with your school and with you or camps uh, where we describe what a seizure looks like, what the typical seizure that your kid looks like, 
uh, and what to do in case of a seizure. You know, very caref carefully written down in bullets uh, uh, so that everyone is safe. We also mentioned the type of medication that they're on, uh, whether they need um, a rescue medication or not, and the dose. All right, so now let's switch gears and talk about treatment, which I've, um, uh, I've mentioned briefly. Um, there's many different kinds of medications for seizures. The one that we use more frequently, especially for generalized convulsive seizures, uh, is levetiracetam, also known as Kepra. Kepra is the brand name. This is a medication uh, that's been around for, um, I don't know, maybe uh, 15 years or something like that. And um, it's very effective. Um, it's completely changed uh, the pharmacopoeia in, in, in epilepsy medication because it's very well tolerated. It hardly has any side effects. It doesn't interact with any other medications like many other antiepileptics do. Um, and uh, you don't need to draw levels to see if it's working or not. Like Valparate, for instance, you have to check the levels to make sure that they're uh, not too high or not too low. You don't need to do that. And it's metabolized through your kidneys, not your liver. Uh, so you don't have to check liver enzymes and you don't have to be careful with other medications that might be metabolized through the liver as well. So, you know, it's a very convenient and very effective medication. Um, Sometimes we have to use another one, either because the levetiracetam is not effective or because there's some side effects that the parents don't like. Uh, very often uh, they complain that their kids might become a little irritable. So there's other options. There's, like I mentioned, Valparate, which is one of the oldest medications in seizures. Uh, I'll buy many side effects that I'm not going to go into detail today. Um, there's another one called Lamotrigine. There's another one um, called... Um, there's other medications that we use more frequently for focal seizures, like oxcarbazepine or carbamazepine. Uh, you know, these weird names uh, that you don't need to memorize or know about unless uh, I prescribe them for your kid. And once we do that, we're going to go in detail about, you know, the different medications, the side effects that you might expect or not. Um, so uh, just like I mentioned in the chapter for absent seizures, um, very typically kids outgrow their seizures. And I'm not going to talk about complicated synd uh, syndromes uh, like Lennox-Gastaut or Dravet syndrome, which uh, are a completely different story. I'm just talking about generalized, simple seizures. Um, they tend to be outgrown. Um, so. Just like we, like I mentioned with absence seizures, what we do is that we typically treat. Uh, sometimes we have to go to higher doses. Sometimes we have to switch to different medication because it's not effective or because of side effects. But typically we treat uh, until there's no seizures. Um, then when there's no seizures, uh, we measure time. Uh, and after two years without any seizures being on the medication, we consider discontinuation of the medication because typically that means that the kid has outgrown the seizures. So we wait two years. At two years, we do an EEG. Uh, and if the EEG looks okay, uh, we stop the medication. We never stop it cold turkey. We always go progressively. That's why it's very important, like I mentioned earlier, don't stop the medications. <laughs> don't decide it on your own, at least. Uh, we have to come up with a schedule, with a titration, making sure that we go slowly down on the medication. Um, and then uh, we repeat an EEG, uh, and if it's normal, we just stay off the medication. Um, 
again, there's a risk that you're going to have a seizure. And in that case, we would just restart it and set the clock back to zero. Um, so uh, another thing that I forgot to mention with the precautions uh, for seizures uh, is a big que question for teenagers, right? Um, can I drive? Uh, and uh, depending on the state, there's different time frames. Uh, in the state of Massachusetts, and in most states in the US, actually, you cannot drive up to six months after your last seizure. So you have a seizure, no driving for six months. If you haven't had a seizure for those six months, then you can start driving. In the state of New Hampshire, which is where I work, um, it's one year, actually. So that's a little bit unfortunate, uh, but it's for your safety, uh, not only for your safety, but for the safety of others that drive with you or that share the road with you. Um, so no driving for six months or one year, depending on the state where you are at. Now, in terms of restrictions, uh, there's no other restrictions, really. You know, the hard stop really is the driving. Um, I mean, obviously, you can pilot a helicopter, a plane, or anything like that. You can drive a bike, that's, that's all right. Uh, always wear a helmet. Um, but uh, restrictions in terms of uh, can I play video games or not? Can I uh, play this sport or not? Can I play football? Uh, there's no real uh, hard restrictions. Uh, now that said, I mentioned video games. Uh, some seizures like the juvenile myoclonic epilepsy can actually be triggered by uh, photic stimulation, by lights, by flashing lights. So if you see that a specific video game actually triggers jerking movements or absence seizures, staring spells, then avoid that game. Uh, but there's no across the board, uh, you know, uh, restriction on what kind of um, activities you can do regarding video games or movies or uh, or, or videos. Um, so I think I've covered all what I wanted to talk about. Obviously, uh, if your kid has had a seizure, um, you know, I'm going to see him or her in person. Uh, whether it's at my office that I will open uh, very soon and I will make an announcement about that or whether I do a home visit. But I need to do a complete neurological exam. A telemedicine encounter will not be enough. Uh, but if that has happened, uh, we will do a full evaluation. We will do an EEG. We will review it together. We will come up with a plan. Um, and if you have any other further questions, uh, we're going to answer them together. All right. So this is all for uh, convulsive seizures. Um, thank you for listening. This was uh, Dr. Vargas Lowy, your personal child neurologist.